change my heart, O God, so that I would be more like you. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy by the name of Dave Booker. And then we're going to look at a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And we're going to look at their lives and we're going to see how, who they were. And because they loved Jesus and they walked like Jesus and they pointed people to Jesus, God used them in a great way. So that's a great song for us to be reminded of. Lord, I pray that today you would make us more like Jesus so that we can go out and we can be examples to Jesus. So I'm glad that you're here this morning. Thank you for being here on this beautiful, beautiful day. March 24th, it will be the third year anniversary of our good friend Dave Booker's home going. He lost his life to cancer. And for those of you that do not know him, Dave was just an ordinary guy. He wasn't a paid professional. He wasn't a pastor. wasn't an elder. He was just an ordinary guy who loved Jesus. And God used his life in a wonderful, wonderful way. Um, he was a part of our music ministry um, Thursdays uh, during Thanksgiving. He had the service, and he always led that service up until the time that he did. And it was a wonderful time for us to gather together to be reminded from Dave about our common faith. And I have a lot of special memories of my relationship with Dave, but one is particular. And this is uh, a time when basically the cancer was, uh, was, it was just taking over his life. And it was just taking, and he couldn't get out anymore. He couldn't come to church. And, and that, uh, you listen, that was really hard for Dave because he loved to sing. He loved to sing. He loved to be around God's people. And so we decided to do something different. We gathered our elders, we gathered just a, a collective group of people, and we went to see him. We did a actual church service in, uh, in his house, at Dave and Peggy's house. And I had an opportunity to share, and we talked, we sang together. And then as we sat around in a circle, everybody had the opportunity to affirm their love for Dave and what they meant to him. Theme of the night was in honor of Dave Booker because we wanted to hear to him from us while he was still living what he meant to us, how much he appreciated us, and how much he'd impacted our lives. So we went around the room. At the end, Dave just stopped. And he said this. He said, God is so good. And then he went around to each individual person and by name, called them up by name, and said what he appreciated about each one of us. And that was the heart. That was the character of Dave Booker. Dave passed away on March 24th. And you have to remember, this is during the COVID time. We did a service for him on March 30th. And this is during COVID. And remember, the, the regulations for the St. Louis area was different from St. Charles. So basically, the only people that could be at his uh, funeral service was uh, immediate family and a few friends. And so we did the service. I was able to be a part of the service. Uh, Dave, actually, we had some recordings and some songs that he sang. He sang. Um, obviously through a recording, we shared some uh, testimonies, we had a video testimony, and then I had an opportunity to share a little bit about Dave's life, family members were involved in this, and then we prayed and we left. And then there was a gathering at, at, at Peg's house where all the family kind of gathered together. And then one person in the family asked this question, as they were standing around as they were talking, he asked this question, and this was the question, how do you get that way? How do you get like Dave, how do you become that kind of person that loves God, that loves Jesus, and has the opportunity to influence other people? Dave 
influenced his family, friends, in an incredibly impactful way, if you will. He made his life and he made a mark in the lives of other people. And I share that with you this morning because in our text, a guy by the name of John the Baptist is going to lose his life. He's sitting in a prison. He's been in prisons because he spoke out against one of the kings, one of the tetrarch. He spoke out the truth. He spoke the truth and he's thrown in prison. He's by himself in prison. And what we have is a, 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 a flashback, if you will, a flashback on the life of John the Baptist and how he impacted one of the tetras, how he impacted a supposed king, and Perea, king of Galilee, at that particular point in time. And Herod saw something that absolutely perplexed him. It absolutely puzzled him. He was mesmerized by the life of John the Baptist. He didn't know what to do with him. So he threw him in prison because of what he said. And his life had a profound impact on other people. And what I want to do is I want to look at that text this morning. What's interesting about the text is this. And I think it's key for our understanding of, of, of John the Baptist. Is Jesus has sent the 12 out, right? He sent them out into Galilee. We just saw that last week. In Mark chapter 6, verse 30, they're going to come back and they're going to give a good report of the message in the ministry. They're going to give a favorable report of their ministry. But sandwiched in those verses from chapter 6, verse 14 to 29 is the death of John the Baptist. Why is it there? Why are we reading about a death in the midst of these sent ones? Because maybe we're supposed to learn something about Herod. Maybe we're supposed to learn something about John. Maybe we're supposed to learn something about taking the message of Jesus out. Listen, when you go, when you're sent, you will impact other people. They will encounter Jesus. I believe they will encounter the truth. And you and I may encounter conflict. And that's what I think that we're going to see in our text this morning. Let me just read the word of God. This is the word of God, Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some are saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others are saying he is Elijah. And so others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, No, John, the man I beheaded, had been raised from the dead. And so now what Mark does is he records a flashback of how John died. Verse 17, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to her, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to do so. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man, but he was, she was not able to do that because John, I'm sorry, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, for he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. 
And the king said to notice this, the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with a request. I want you to give to me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests, but he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. A man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Father, we have the death this morning of one of your godly saints. And Father, it's recorded there for a reason. Father, we thank you for the life. We thank you for the testimony of faithful people who live out their faith. Father, we thank you for the faithful witness of John the Baptist and him being the forerunner to Jesus. And Father, I ask this morning that the Spirit of God would speak to us about who he is, about the way that he lived his life, the way that he spoke the truth, Lord. Father, that we might learn some principles of how we are to do the same. Father, I ask that you would speak to us through your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So what happens when Jesus sends out the 12? What happens when John the Baptist is sent out? Number one, we see in verse 14, people encounter Jesus. Verse 14 says this, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Verse 16 basically says the same thing. But when Herod heard this, what had Herod heard? Well, as we saw last week, Jesus had sent the 12 out and he'd sent them out on a mission. I want you to go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message that he had given to them. That's the message that they had heard. And he had also sent them out also with the authority to cast out demons. So now they had this message. They had the authority to cast out demons. And they went out and they began to minister all through Galilee in Paris. They went all throughout Galilee preaching the message of Jesus, casting out demons. And all of a sudden, the message about not the disciples, but the message of Jesus got out. And this is about Jesus and what had happened had become well known to all of the people. And again, it's not about the disciples and about wasn't, it wasn't about what they were doing. They were hearing a message ultimately about Jesus and his identity. And so they were confused about the identity of Jesus. Is this John the Baptist who's been somehow reincarnated? Is this Elijah? Is this one of the prophets? In other words, what they have is they have this understanding, of, a veiled understanding of who Jesus is. And the 12 are going out and they're telling people about the message of Jesus. But I think they're also doing some other things. And if you go back and look at chapters 1 through 5, they're telling all of these people about the wonderful experiences they had as they, as they settle into a house, as they settle into a community. They begin to tell all of the wonderful experiences they personally had seen in the life of Jesus, him casting out demons, healing a man with leprosy, a paralyzed man, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, about being on the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden the storm is calm, and all of a sudden the, 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 the sea is calm. All of these wonderful experiences with the message of Jesus, going out village to village, telling people about what he had done, about the message of Jesus. 
they were ultimately giving testimony to life and the ministry and the person of Jesus. And there's no doubt that crowds and crowds of people were coming to see them because in Mark chapter 3 it says that people came from Tyre, people came from Sidon, people came from Jerusalem, all because they wanted an audience. They'd heard about this miracle worker, they heard about this man who speaks, and they were mesmerized with the life of Jesus. And as the 12 go out, what are they doing? They're telling people about Jesus. Listen, and here we are 2,000 years later. And according to Matthew chapter 28, we are to go out and we are to preach the gospel. You and I have the great privilege of taking the message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ out to people who do not know him. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that your life, your, your life can have an impact on the life of another person by what they see in your life? Like a Dave Booker? Like a John the Baptist, you believe that light shines in the midst of darkness, that your light can shine in such a way that it can radically change other people. There's a man by the name of uh, R.C. Sproul, and he's a pastor, he's a scholar, he's a writer, and he wrote a book called The Holiness of God. And he shares a story about Billy Graham. For those of you that don't know Billy Graham, Billy Graham was an evangelist. He was a sent one. And this man spoke to millions of people about Jesus all over the world, all over the country. He was known as an evangelist telling people about Jesus. And so in this book, R.C. Sproul tells us this example that Billy Graham had in the life of another person. And here's the the story. A well-known professional golfer was playing in a golf tournament with President Gerald Ford fellow pro golfer Jack Nicholas and Billy Graham. After the round was over, one of the other pro tour pros asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? The pros said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. With that, he headed to the practice tee. His friend followed, and after the golfer had pounded out his fury on a bucket of golf balls, he asked, was Billy a little rough on you out there? The pro sighed and with embarrassment said this, no, he didn't even mention religion. Astonishingly, Billy Graham had said nothing about God, Jesus, or religion, yet the pro stomped away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. What had happened? Simply this. The evangelist, Billy Graham, had so reflected Christ-likeness that his presence brought the same feeling to the pro as experienced by the prophet Isaiah. He came to the understanding that he was a last lost man and he was a man of unclean lips. Isn't that interesting? Billy Graham didn't really say a word. He just simply went about his life. And this man who was obviously lost saw something uniquely different about the life of Billy Graham and somehow, some way, he was convicted in his heart. Listen, when, when you go out, you take the person of Jesus because you represent him. You are a light in the midst of darkness. And, and as we look to Jesus and as we imitate Jesus and we follow Jesus, people are going to see some kind of resemblance, hopefully, of Jesus inside of us. And that's why you and I are called to be sent and why we need to be obedient and going because people are going to see something uniquely different about you. You may be a a high school student. People can see the difference that Jesus makes in your life. 
You may be a factory. You may be someone in your neighborhood. The way that you live, the way that you respond can have an incredible impact on the lives of other people. As they sent when, when we go out, we represent the person of Jesus. Second thing I believe that we see in this is that when you are sent, people are going to encounter the truth. Herod is going to encounter the truth about his life, the truth about Wade he was looking. Look at verse 17 and 18. Notice what it says. Mark writes this. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. Hmm. Why would he have John arrested? Well, he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Does this sound a little odd to you? Does it sound a little wacky to you? Is this a little dynasty? Anybody remember the old TV show? This, this is bad stuff. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have, for you to have your, mother's, your brother's wife. What's the deal here? The deal here is this. Herod the Great was a bad man. He was an evil man. He was an immoral man. He was a corrupt man. This is a guy who had a lot of different wives. They say he had 10 different wives, and he basically killed people. If you didn't like him, he would kill him. He would kill his son-in-law. He would just basically extinguish people. He was a man full of power, full of greed, and he ignored the very laws of God to do whatever it was to serve his own purpose. He put a really, really high taxation on, on the Jewish people so we could have all of these buildings. Go back and you can see all of these wonderful, extravagant buildings, and they came from the Jewish people because he basically taxed them to death. That was Herod the Great. What's the saying, the apples don't fall too far from the tree? That's what we see here in Herod Antipas. That's who he's referring to here in verse 17. Now, now stay with me for a minute as I describe Herod Antipas to you in this background of the story. Herod Antipas, the guy who's described here, he went to Rome. And he was married and he went to Rome. He went there with his wife. And he saw Philip. Philip is his half-brother, right? Half-brother, who's married to Herodias, and they have a child by the name of Salome. Remember that name. And so they spent some time there. And as they spent some time there, Herodias, who was actually the daughter of Herod's half-brother. You got that? See how these are all intermarriage with each other? I mean, talk about an immoral family. As Herod is there, he sees Herodias. Remember, he's already married. He sees Herodias. And somehow, in some lustful way, his heart begins to, to begin to meander and stray to Herodias, his brother's wife. And they make this agreement, if you will, that they are going to go get married. And so his wife, Herod's wife, realizing that Herod is absolutely bonkers, basically leaves and goes back to her father, the Nabatan king, if you will. And so they go to Rome, and Herod and Herodias are now married, if you will. Herod has basically married Herodias, who is, some ways, his niece, since he was the brother. He was the half-brother of, of one of her brothers. And, and you see the twisted tale of all of these different people and how Herod the Great has influenced Herod Antipas, if you will. And that's the situation that John the Baptist was confronting with Herod and Herodias. They were having this immoral, adulterous relationship where he had separated from his, uh, Herod had separated from his wife, sent her away, and now they're married and they're living together in this immoral, 
adulterous, evil relationship. And because Herod had basically professed in some kind of way, some kind of thought, that he was going to follow Judaism, John the Baptist is confronting him. He's confronting them with the reality of Leviticus, the reality of God's word that says, it is unlawful for you to have this woman as your wife because you are committing adultery. And that's what John was doing. John was confronting this leader, Herod the Tetrarch. He was confronting him about the immoral relations that he had. Think about it. Here was this mighty, powerful preacher by the name of John the Baptist going about, calling people to repentance. You brood of vipers to the religious people. You brood of vipers, repent. And now he has an audience with a great Herod, and he says, you need to repent of your sin because of what you're doing. Listen, Herod encountered the truth, the reality about who God is and the requirements that he has for his life. And when you go out in the name of Jesus, you have the opportunity to present the claims of Christ, not in a you brood of vipers kind of way, but you have the opportunity to present the claims of Christ in a way that matches up with the conversations that you're having with other people. I got a, a text message this week, and you don't know this person, they don't live here, and the text went like this, got a minute. You ever get those text messages? You know what's coming. So I said, yeah, call in five minutes. So we called. So I spent about 45 minutes on the phone with this person and basically said this, I, I just quit my job. I just quit. Can't do it anymore. And as I began to talk and to hear, basically what I did was I just listened to them, and they talked. We talked about the relationship with their family, relationship with their wife is great, relationship with the children is good, relationship with all these other things is good. As we talked, there was something down inside of him, something down inside of him that wasn't right, and he knew it. And by the way, so this has been going on for a long time. He basically told his wife, and his wife told him, listen, figure it out. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until our hearts rest in thee. And at the end of the conversation, I just simply said this. Listen, you know who I am and you know what I do. This is the only thing that I can tell you. I can tell you that 30, 40 years ago when my life was unraveling, somebody told me about Jesus. And all I did was I went on a journey and I went on a journey to find out about this guy by the name of Jesus, about who he is, what he's done, and what he could do for me. And I said, that's what I would encourage you to do. I can only point you to the one person who radically changed my life, Jesus, and I can only point you to the truth. And so I encouraged him. I would start with John chapter 1 and start reading John chapter 1. And when you read John chapter 1 and read the Gospel of John, ask these questions. Who is this and what is it telling me about Jesus? And so I told him. So we got off the, the phone and I, I, I texted him. I, I googled uh, ESV uh, John chapter 1 and I sent it to him. Listen, my point in sharing that story is this, that you and I come in contact with people all the time. In the normal conversations of life, we have the incredible privilege of just pointing them to, to, the, to the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. Has Jesus done something in your life? Then share what he's done with your life. I think that's what the disciples did. Let me show you. Let me tell you about all the wonderful things that we saw Jesus do with our own eyes. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for my life. And let me point you to the wonderful person of Jesus. And I think when you and I go out, we have the privilege 
of speaking the truth of God to people. But I think there's something else here. There's something else that Herod saw, and he saw something personally in the life of John the Baptist. Look at verse 20. Notice what Herod saw, experienced in the life of John. Because Herod feared John and protected him, what? Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. This is a testimony from Herod as to the character, if you will, of John the Baptist. He saw John the Baptist. He saw that there was something different about him. He's in a prison. I would imagine he's in this prison, and because he liked to listen to him, I can see him going down, and when John's in prison, him sneaking down there and talking to him. No wonder Herodias hated him. And so John is probably sneaking down there and having these conversations. And no one says, he's perplexed, he's puzzled. He sees something different about John the Baptist. He sees he's a righteous man. He sees he's a holy man, but he's puzzled. He loves to hear him. He loves to listen to him, but he just can't get the connections right. Think about it. Think about all that Herod had heard and all that he had seen. And he's still seeing an element of truth through the life of John the Baptist, if you will. There's still a tenderness to the truth, still a tenderness to the gospel, if you will. He loved to listen to him. He loved to hear him. In other words, Herod was pretty conflicted about John the Baptist. He was perplexed about him. But Herodias wasn't. Herodias knew exactly what she wanted from him. John the Baptist. When you are sent out, you have the privilege of representing Jesus. When we are sent out, we have the privilege of speaking God's truth. When we are sent out, there are times when we will experience conflict. And that's what John the Baptist experienced through Herodias. Look at verse 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she wasn't able to do that. Listen, when it says that Herodias nursed a grudge, it means this. She despised him in her heart. She despised him in her heart. What's interesting is this. Where, where's John the Baptist? He's in prison. He's in prison. It's not enough for John the Baptist to be in prison. She wants him dead. Talk about being confronted with the truth. Talk about your conscience being seared. Talk about the evil desires, thoughts of your heart. This is Herodias speaking, and she wants one thing. She simply wants John the Baptist dead. Notice what it says she wasn't able to. So what did she do? She waited. And I believe what did she do? She plotted. Where did she plot? Right up here. Right here. She plotted in her heart, and she plotted in her mind. I'm going to get rid of this guy. There's going to come a time when I'm going to get rid of him. I look at verse 29, 21. Finally, the opportune time came. The opportunity presented itself. It's Herod's big day. He has this uh, birthday party, and he's throwing a big birthday party for all of the bigwigs. The military officials are there, the leading of politicians, anyone who's anybody's there. He's rolled out the red carpet, and all of these people are gathered together, and they're celebrating Herod's birthday, if you will. And the wine is flowing, the food is flowing, and everybody's having a grand old time because of this grand party that Herod has thrown for himself. And all of a sudden, something happens that changes the complexity of the night. 
verse 22. Salome, and we know her name because of uh, the writings of Josephus, she comes in, in verse 22, she comes in and she begins to dance in front of Herod, in front of all these guests. And the way that the text is thrown out here, it's a very sensual kind of dance, very suggestive kind of dance. And remember, this is, this is Herod's stepdaughter. I can't imagine my daughter sending my daughter out, 13, 14, to do something lewd like this. This is a stepdaughter, and she's dancing provocatively. And everyone's hooping and hauling, everybody's slapping each other on the back. And Herod, his eyes, lustful eyes, are looking at this young woman, his stepdaughter. And, and he rejoices in, her, in his heart. Oh, man, you've done such a good job. You've pleased me in so many ways. If you just ask for whatever you wish, up to half of the kingdom, I'm going to give it to you. This boastful pride of his life. He tells this young woman. Little girl's probably confused as to what to do. Should I ask for this beautiful coat? Should I ask for a pot? What should I ask for? She runs to a mom. And Herodias off to the side, realizes that she has her chance. I've got John the Baptist right where I want him. So she, Herodias, prompts her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist. What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. And Salome, without haste, immediately goes back to Herod. And what's interesting is this, in the original language, it, you, when, you, when you look at the language, you kind of put it together. This is the way it kind of reads. I want you to give me, at once, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Could you imagine the gasps? Imagine the people reacting? All the leading officials? You're really going to have this guy beheaded? Because of this desire from Herodias, this desire for this young woman? Can you imagine Herod? Remember Herod? Like listening to him. Herod was puzzled. He was perplexed. And, and it says, remember, it says he tried to protect him. Who's he trying to protect him from? From Herodias. Herodias wants to kill him. And now he can't do that anymore. He's made this promise. He's made this oath. He's all these dinner guests. The blood is drained from his face. What's he going to do? It's a total lack of conscience on this man. Is he going to respond to do the right thing to do, a righteous, holy man, to free him? Or is he going to follow this oath and follow the voice of the crowd? Because there's nothing inside of him in which to, to respond to. And that's what he does. He's conflicted on the inside. Verse 26 says this, The king was greatly distressed, but because of those and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse to. And that's what he did. He gave the order, sent the executioner down to the prison. John the Baptist lost his life in a horrible, horrible description. His head is brought back to all of these dinner guests, if you will, on a platter and is presented to him. And that's how John the Baptist died. Verse 29, the only um, uh, sense of decency in the whole text says this. Uh, on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. That's the only act of decency, if you will, in this whole text. And just like Joseph of Arimathea, who would bury Jesus' body, the disciples come and they take him off and they bury his body, and then they tell Jesus. And what's interesting, in Matthew chapter 14, it says that Jesus went off by himself, probably to think about, to contemplate the death of John the Baptist. And so we have this record of the death of John the Baptist. 
when, when we are sent out, people will encounter Jesus. When we are sent out, people will encounter the truth as we articulate our faith. When we are sent out, sometimes we will experience conflict. We will experience difficulties. Let me just take a minute or two. I've got a few minutes. Let me just draw out a couple of principles for this, for us to go home. This is what I want you to think about as we leave here. This is what I think the correlation between our lives and this text. Number one is this. There is a parallel between the life of John the Baptist and Jesus. There is a parable, or a, a, a parallel. Of, John was a holy man. Jesus was a holy man. They were persecuted. Both of them were persecuted. Both of them died a horrible death. In other words, even in his death, John the Baptist, as the forerunner of the Messiah, was pointing to Jesus and how he would die. And his remember his motto, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist and Jesus both lost their lives living for the honor and for the glory of life. There is a parallel. And the bottom line is this. If we love Jesus, there may be times when you and I will experience difficult and challenges if we go out in the name of Jesus. Second thing is this. Be careful how you listen to God's truth. Be careful how you listen to God's truth. And this is what I mean. There's a lot of people in the church, I believe, they're intrigued with the person of Jesus. They're fascinated by his miracles. They're marveled at his teaching. Um, But they share the same kind of perplexity that Herod had. They're not fully willing to look at and embrace the unique person of Jesus and who he is and what he's come and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. They keep Jesus at a bay. They're perplexed about him. They like to read about him, but they've never really surrendered their heart and their mind to Jesus. Think about Herod. Herod had an audience with John the Baptist. Jesus said he's one of the greatest preachers, one of the greatest people to ever live. That's what he says. And he heard about this, and he he saw his life, and he was with him, and yet he never bowed the knee, if you will, to Jesus. Herod will come back in contact with Jesus in Luke chapter 23. Not only would he see John the Baptist, but he would be confronted with the reality of the unique person of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 23, verse 8. By the way, Jesus called him, remember what he called him? Herod, you're a fox. You're a sly little fox. You're a cunning man. Luke chapter 23, Jesus comes before Herod. Notice what he says. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Isn't that interesting? Jesus was not going to speak to him. And what did Herod want to see? He wanted to see a trick. Just do a miracle for me. Just do a miracle for me. That's all I want to see. And by the way, when you go back and read Luke chapter 23, you know what Herod ends up doing to Jesus? putting a robe on him, throwing a a crown on his head, and mocking him and persecuting him for who he is and what he was about to do. That's who Herod was. That's the character of Herod's life. That's the conscience of Herod. After all he saw through the life of John the Baptist, all that he'd heard about the unique person of Jesus, he could not bow the knee. His conscience become so seared because of all the things that he had done that he could not reconcile a relationship with Jesus. You and I need to be careful what we listen to 
and not harden our hearts to the truth of God's word. Number three that I'd like to pull out of this is it's conflicts could come. If you go back and look in Matthew chapter 10, when the, the record of Mark's account of, of Mark chapter 6, the parallel, when you look at the extended version of Jesus sending out the disciples, you will see him tell them, listen, I did not come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. In other words, if people hate me, they're going to hate you. If people hate you and I, we understand it's because of what Jesus has done. Now, we're not looking for people to hate us. That's not what we're doing. We're simply looking to go out, represent Jesus, and tell people about the unique person of Jesus. Conflict will come. Trust the Lord because you don't know where Jesus is going to send you, and you don't know what's going to happen in your life. John the Baptist was sitting in prison. He had no idea what was going to happen to him. He'd been put in there for an unjust cost. Trust the Lord. The last thing I want to leave you is this. Do people see Jesus in you? Do people see Jesus in you? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says this. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Isn't that interesting? We all claim to to believe and trust in Jesus, then what we are challenged to do is walk in the way that Jesus did. We are to walk as Jesus did. In other words, we are to follow and emulate the life of Jesus. And as we do that, we bring the message of Jesus out to other people. We're all sent ones. Every one of us, we're all sent. You have the great privilege of representing the person of Jesus Christ. You have the great privilege of representing the truth of God's word. To other people. Father, we recognize the unique call that we have on our lives to live for Jesus. Father, I don't, I don't claim to think that that's easy. Father, that is difficult. The situations that we face are complex. The issues that confront us are very, very hard. And Father, I ask that you would simply give us boldness, that you would give us courage, and that you would open doors to help us to point people to Jesus and the wonder, and the beauty, and the compassion, and the love, and the grace, and the mercy of Jesus. Lord, he is our all in all. And Father, I pray that you would allow us the great privilege of being able to take the name of Jesus Christ out. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.